Hello and welcome to Impact Investment, Intentionality and Innovation. My name is Kieran, a lawyer passionate about impact and innovation. In this series, we sit down with purpose-driven leaders, impact investors and entrepreneurs that turn up the volume to 11 to tackle the world's most pressing issues. We explore what drives these positive disruptors and how these trailblazers have taken an innovative approach to intentionally make a positive impact. Today, I'm delighted to speak with Dharma Sathinathan. Dharma is a partner at Bethnal Green Ventures, Europe's leading early stage tech for good VC, which invests in, in ambitious and diverse founders using technology to create positive impact at scale. Dharma is also a trustee at Shen, a charity that creates open source tools for survivors of domestic abuse and gender-based violence. Dharma has a background in the NGO sector and also co-hosts Tech for Good London, a meetup group that brings together hackers, coders, developers and designers with people who really understand the social problem and want to build digital solutions to social and environmental challenges. During our conversation, Dharma shares insights gleaned from her six years at BGV, as well as Dharma's experiences in the charity and NGO sector. Let's get started. So Dharma, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Brilliant. Um, Yeah, really looking forward to our conversation today. And during this this chat, it'd be really good to hear a bit more about your background as as well as your role at Bethel Green Ventures and also your reflections on, on impact investment. But first, if it's all right with you, I thought we might start with some quick fire questions. Go so, for it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, so the first question is, what are you most proud of? Uh, staying alive. Staying alive. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> good one to start with. <laughs> um, second question is, who's your inspiration and why? Oh, that's a hard question. Definitely not a quick fire. Um, <laughs> I think I draw most inspiration from family members, to be fair, um, especially because they are from all different walks of life and are incredibly resilient and, and have endured quite a lot of hardship as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just managed to stay chipper and really, really warm and are great people. So yeah, drawing most inspiration from them. Yeah, that's good. My my inspirations are my my grandfather as well. So definitely a theme of family with this, which is which is good. Um, for my next question, is there a particular myth you'd like to bust? Oh, there's so many myths I'd like to bust. <laughs> One of the biggest ones, perhaps, in the realm of impact investing, that there's there's always a trade-off between profit and purpose. That is a big myth I'd love to bust. Um, another one is definitely around pipeline, that there's a pipeline issue when it comes to um, providing access to capital to more underrepresented founders, and there is no pipeline issue. There's only an issue with how capital is being allocated to begin with. Yeah, I can definitely definitely agree with that. Maybe we can pick on and develop that a bit more later on in, in our conversation, Dharma. Mm. Yeah. Okay, next question. How do you switch off from work? <laughs> oh, if you can switch one. off, that is. <laughs> yeah, I, do, I can definitely switch off from work. Um, I got some uh, got some time to learn how to do that effectively, but I think the easiest way is for me to actually just either read, watch something, hang out with friends, go for dinner, eat, love, pray. Not pray, actually. That is, I don't know why I said that, but that's definitely not on the table. Um, but definitely Maybe that's sleeping. a film you're watching. <laughs> oh, God, no, don't, never. <laughs> well, that sounds a really good um, really good list of ways to switch off from work, and I'm sure lots of our listeners will um, relate to that as well. So, so um, 
I'm right in thinking you just got back from Japan, so I don't know if this is related to your my, my fifth question. Um, <laughs> where's your happy place? Oh, yeah, happy place is definitely at home. Um, home is quite a flexible notion for me. It's mostly where loved ones are. Um, I think the biggest sort of happy place is for me and my mom's kitchen because uh, she's an amazing cook and I love just eating her food. Amazing. Has she got like a signature dish, signature dish or? Plenty. Yeah, yeah, plenty. plenty. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, that sounds, sounds like a good, good, happy place to be with uh, nicely fed and uh, with, with your loved ones. That sounds good to me. So my penultimate quickfire question is, what is on your bucket list? So Japan was definitely on my bucket list, uh, which I just came back from, which is why I might sound a bit frazzled throughout this entire interview <laughs> because I'm a bit jet like but um, what else is on my bucket list? Um, I don't really have a bucket list, but I do like to travel. So I guess the next sort of bigger place I really want to explore is Mexico. Yeah, Mexico. Nice. It's on my list as well. So maybe we've got to compare <laughs> notes about a good place oh, yeah. to visit Mexico. <laughs> good stuff. So... For my final quickfire question, a bit of a random one, can you remember the first album you purchased? And I kind of want to, you know, <laughs> contextualise this a bit, but not provide you any pressure because my one definitely wasn't a cool one. It was, I think it was the S Club 7 <laughs> album. So um, say whatever that comes to mind, no pressure. The <laughs> um, um, first album I purchased, I actually know this really well because we were, I purchased my first album, which was a CD uh, back in the day. Um, when my school was on a trip to London um, and I bought Beyonce's album, her first debut album, which I think was Dangerously in Love. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. a much, much better choice than mine, I think. So, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, brilliant. Well, um, thanks for sharing these answers to those quick fire questions, Dharma. And I think your last answer kind of flows nicely into the first section of this, this conversation where I want to kind of understand and hear a bit more about your your upbringing upbringing which i understand you kind of grew up in germany which is um i don't know if it still is or was perceived to be one of the world's most sustainable industrialized nations mm. do you think that that kind of without wanting to look too deeply in it perhaps but would you say that your that your upbringing in germany has kind of shaped your career and what you're doing now um that's that's a deep question <laughs> start um, the deep one <laughs> I'm not, I would say yes and no. Um, so it's true, Germany has a particular sort of emphasis on um, bringing a lot around sort of sustainable education and sustainable development in general into the education system relatively early on. And that was definitely the case for me when I went to school. Um, so it's, that was actually, well, it's really shameful. It was part of a sustainability club. <laughs> It's just one of those after-school clubs, right, um, where I ended up being with a bunch of groups, bunch of mates that I'm still really good close with and really into, like, some of them, like, they have children now and they're my godchildren. Um, so really, like, lifelong bonds um, through that sustainability club. Um, but, yeah, it, it, there was a huge emphasis on actually looking into understanding what climate action is at such an early age as well so sort of when we're, we're talking 15 16 years old um and really looking into aspects of what needs to happen in sort of on a policy level on a political engagement level especially with young people um in order to actually ensure that we have sustainable futures to look forward to and actually maintain a sustainable planet 
Um, so that definitely sort of shaped my interest in sustainable development as a whole. Um, also led to what I ended up studying and what I ended up, um, why I ended up in the civil society sector in the first place, but then switched over to the private markets in that sense. But And with BGV, definitely sustainability and climate tech is such a huge part of our investment thesis as well, which is still one of the sort of biggest interests of mine um, when it comes to looking at investment. Mm. Interesting one as well. I don't think there's any shame being involved in sustainability club. I definitely was like an eco club when I was at school as well. And I guess, the, you know, people who are, you know, working in sustainability and environmental tech are probably the coolest people out there right now, aren't they? So yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely not uh, anything to be ashamed of. So, uh, but yeah, really interesting to hear that, Dharma. Thanks. Um, I don't know if this is um, a perception I kind of see from the outside. You seem to be kind of a person that loves connecting with people and kind of creating mm. opportunities for other people to kind of connect particularly through the meetup group, which is really popular and um, shout out now, really good events as well. Um, Thanks. Do you think this kind of this kind of wanting to kind of connect with people kind of stems from that you know, experience of moving to the UK and, you know, perhaps wanting to make connections in a new country? Or again, is it just part of your personality? You like like connecting with people? <laughs> um, oh God, that's, that's a hard question to answer. Um, I think it's, again, sort of a mix of both. Um, I think there's huge value in just being able to connect with others, especially when you have differences in attitudes and approaches and actually just want to augment your thinking a little. Um, but I also understand people in, in, in order to build that sort of cultural empathy to to really work with people, to collaborate, to really um, to really think about systems change as a whole as well, because it always feels like it's quite an isolated sector, but tech is not going to be the solution to all of our problems, be they social or environmental. So it's incredibly important to have sort of different actors come to, to have a platform to actually enable people from different walks of life to come together to be able to talk about specific topics they're really interested in or just being able to connect them on particular ideas, businesses or um, policy changes they want to they wanna enable as well and be having that space to sort of collaborate and connect with people is incredibly important. Um, and I think the tech for good meetups as such are just a really great platform to enable us to do that because we see a huge number of charitable organizations, be there kicks, NGOs, um, or you name it, um, other types of organizations that have charitable clauses within their sort of articles of association and are not companies limited by shares, um, as well as co-ops, individuals who are just really interested in tech for good. We've got people who work in government and civil society, uh, members of different uh, of different sort of institutions and research institutes that just want to connect and just want to connect the dots and actually enabling and actually shaping a future that provides equitable opportunities as well. And that's, that's sort of the beauty of the meetups, I feel, because... Um, it sort of stemmed from just being able to having show and tells about how people are deploying tech in uh, around sort of specific social problems. And that sort of evolved into building a whole community of more than 10,000 members now who are just really interested in yeah finding out how they can work together. 
yeah, it really is a fantastic community. And you, when you go to an event, you never know who you're going to meet, which is really <laughs> exciting and people from different backgrounds, different experiences. But I think there's perhaps a, um, a misconception maybe of venture where lots of investors kind of um, connect with prospective investees through kind of cold or warm intros, which can could create or frankly probably have created kind of closed networks mm. where under underrepresented founders are kind of intentionally or un, unintentionally locked out. Is this one of the reasons why the Tech for Good Meetup is kind of like an open door policy, like anyone can attend? Is that was that part of it, or is there another reason why you do that? I mean, it's definitely a huge um, sort of lever of, of change for us as well to be able to just have that open space where founders can come along and actually also get to know us through different interactions other than just pitching for investment. Um, because it equally, it just matters who's on your cap table as well. So we, we tell founders as well to do their due diligence on us or on investors they want on their cap tables as well because ultimately they're going to enrich them as well. So it matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the meetup, again, has sort of the quality of just being being a platform for change makers, for different people to just connect and inspire each other as well. So. I before I joined B2B as well, I worked in the in the charity charity sector for a large NGO. And I used to go along to the Tech for Good meetups before I joined B2B because I was really interested in hearing stories from founders and from other NGOs and how they were deploying technology in frontline services because that's something that we were exploring at the time in our organization. And that's sort of when I was really inspired to hear from founders just around how young, how young, scrappy and hungry they are and, and how incredibly, incredibly savvy they were in just using so little resource available to actually build meaningful and meaningful products that were actually helping and adopted by the people they were trying to help. Whereas I saw examples in the charity sector where huge amounts of public taxpayer money was going into development of products and services that that were just not being tested with the right people and not even with the target audience and then a lot of money was just tanked by building products that actually no one in the end needed and wasn't adopted by the people they were trying to serve so just getting getting that sort of inspiration in how to build products as well and what and getting insights into what worked and what didn't work from other organizations and individuals was just really really helpful great so Dharma, I thought if it's okay, we might go back to your education, your kind of background. I know um, without playing up to lower stereotypes, did a bit of um, sleuthing online to kind of see your your academic CV. And I know you've got a BA in liberal arts and sciences and also a master's degree in international relations. On the face of it, you wouldn't necessarily assume that those disciplines would lead to a career in VC, um, perhaps <laughs> to a degree in sort of you know, finance, business or economics. But I was wondering, do you think your educational background has kind of helped you have what I consider to be a successful career in VC because you can draw that diversity of thought and experience. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, there's there's a debate around sort of a successful career in VC. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would agree with your sort of assessment. I definitely have a bit of an unusual background into VC, but um, considering the sort of the lack of representation in this industry. I feel like we do need to encourage more people from different walks of life to have very, who come from very unusual backgrounds to break into VC as well. Um, And that's 
also purely because it's incredibly important to increase representation if we're also going to focus on making investment decisions into um, into more underrepresented founders as well or to people who come from really marginalized communities who are also bearing the brunt of some of the problems they're trying to solve. Um, which is why, yeah, I think overall it's just a very positive thing. But sort of relating back to my education as well, I think the the biggest benefit of my educational background and how it's helped me in VC is mostly the sort of um, the, the 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 sort of ability and the muscle memory in a, in essence um, to really evaluate and analyze different problems from different lenses and take sort of different intersectional approaches to trying to understand specific problems that we're trying to solve as well. Um, so for example, my liberal arts degree had a huge emphasis on modernity, identities and cultural sort of intercultural engagement as well, um, which really helps with building a bit more nuance and empathy towards founders who do not come from the same background that I might have or um, who come from very, very different walks of life um, than many of the people in the VC industry. Um, but then applying the sort of lens in how do we make VC or access to capital more inclusive as well is sort of the thing that I got from my education is to really try different approaches that just make people have better access to capital and have better access to equitable opportunities in that way as well. Um, but yeah, overall, I think it's just really important that we encourage more people from different backgrounds to break into VC as well, especially if we want to ensure that there is equitable representation in the sector. Big question, but how how are we going to do that? Is it by you know providing underrepresented people with the kind of decision-making and check-writing power? Is that one of the things or...? Anything particular to pinpoint? I mean, that's that's a really good start because it comes down to um, making the investments, right? Um, so seeing sort of angel programs emerge from the likes of Atomical and Ada who provide access to capital to angel investors or encourage more underrepresented individuals to actually make angel investments into the founders they want to back is, is a really helpful step towards that representation overall. But I think it also goes a bit deeper into um, education in general, because we can do all the things that we want to do if there's still a barrier within the VC sector that is just this one homogeneous group of people who do not want to break away from their sort of habits. And that's where a huge educational piece is just needed in creating the, a better understanding and creating a, a sort of sense of community really around why enabling opportunities for everyone is just a really worthwhile effort and not just for the few that know the maids of the maids who work at that fund. Mm. Um, yeah, I think build, the, the sort of allyship is, is, is a word that's being overused especially in the in in the last three years, especially with sort of the emergence of Black Lives Matter, because that's sort of the narrative that came out of out of this incredible movement. Um, 
but the same sort of methods are being used now to also close down and close off access to capital to a lot of people. So I think really trying to dive deeper into what do we mean by equitable access to opportunities is going to be incredibly important. Mm, for sure. And I guess another misconception or perception about VC is it's quite a, a closed a closed world. And obviously, you only really know about it if you have that experience in VC or your, your friends are in it or, you know, connections with it. Um, is there something that an outsider wouldn't know about VC that you'd be willing to share with, with our listeners? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't know about VC until six years ago when I applied for <laughs> to work at B2B. So, um, but I think because VC operates in private markets and there's virtually private markets are private, right? So I would love for more resources to be allocated about educating people about the impacts of private markets as well, not only what VC is, but how private equity works in general, because a lot of a lot of times the the purchasing decisions we make on an everyday basis are towards private companies that have absolutely no mandate to adhere to any type of guidelines when it comes to ESG or impact. Um, so, for example, what the B Labs team in the UK is doing in order to ensure that the um, the, the Better Business Act, the whole movement about ensuring that there's more stakeholder engagement for private companies as well, and that there's a proliferation of intentionality and stakeholder engagement for each and every company that exists in the UK is hugely important. And I think a really good move to actually educate people around their impact of their purchasing decisions on people and planet as well. And that's, yeah, I, I would wish that people would be able to have access to that sort of education as well and then also learn more about VC in general. Yeah, for sure. I think um like B Labs have done really you know, done really good effort kind of getting things more into the mainstream. You go into some supermarkets now and you've got like a B Labs aisle yeah. and people are more conscious about the decision. But um maybe that's just me because I'm kind of involved in this in this world. <laughs> but I'm hoping that, that other people are kind of equally as supportive of that and that stakeholder engagement piece which you talked about. Um, you also talked about your kind of experiences in the, the charity sector. I know you're a trustee of Chan. I hope I've, have I pronounced Chen. that correctly? Chen. So yeah, yeah. Apologies. Um, <laughs> so I'd be interested to know, like, what made you want to become a trustee and, you know, how do you get involved in the charity? Yeah, um, gosh. Um, so I got involved because uh, the founder of Chen, Hera Hussein, asked me to join as a director when she set it up as a kick, so a community interest company. And um, we sort of realized there was a huge gap in being able to access funding from quite a lot of grant um, making bodies in the UK, purely because it was a company limited by guarantee. So we did the whole flip into a charitable organization, um, so a CIO now, which uh, Jen is a nonprofit organization now. Um, and that's sort of when I made when I made the transition to become a trustee instead of a director. And um, yeah, it's it's it was quite a natural sort of fit because I worked with Hera on previous um, on previous projects around helping um, women and children who were refugees at, at the sort of height of the Syrian refugee crisis as well, and being able to access services to cope with their mental health problems. 
Um, and from that sort of point onwards, we, we just became friends and were working together on a few sort of things. And that's when I sort of got involved in Chen as well. And Chen in general is a, is a really amazing organization. It's, it's largely volunteer-led, survivor-led, um, so and addressing and building sort of online resources and guides and services um, to help survivors of domestic abuse and gender-based violence um, yeah, cope and manage and build that sort of resilience and find happiness again. Um, and it's just, yeah, being a trustee is kind of hard, I must say. Um, <laughs> I know now why a lot of trustees in my previous sort of uh, NGO stints were significantly older and significantly uh, had more time on their hands as well because it is it is a huge piece, a huge responsibility when it comes to the sort of governance and setting the strategy and being able to, yeah, being able just to comply with all of the mandates and the charitable objects of that organization as well. But we've got some really amazing trustees and an amazing chair as part of Jen as well. Um, the team, the staff members of the Chen team are incredible and really poised when it comes to keeping us informed about what's going on on an everyday basis. So, um, yeah, it's manageable, but it is it is quite intense. Mm. Yeah, I can empathize with that. I was a, I was a trustee until a, a few years ago, and it's you you want to give as much time as you can, but obviously you've got you've got a day job to do as well, haven't you? So you yeah. kind of got to you know balance that appropriately. Do, how do you find that kind of balance? Do you kind of dedicate like you know one day a week to doing a bit of stuff for the charity, or do you kind of just as and when things come in, you provide your you know support? Yeah, I mean it is it there's there's sort of periods when when it really ramps up because it requires sort of. Um, my sort of skill set when it comes to fundraising, for example, or when it comes to um, working with some of the partners that we have um, in Germany around sort of tackling digital violence. And um, yeah, uh, it sort of varies in terms of the the, velocity, the volume of like engagement as well. But overall, it's sort of there's a there's a minimum amount of time that I that I've dedicated to spend on a monthly basis. Um, when I was interim chair of, of the board as well, I used to have calls with Hera on every Sunday because they're, the working days of staff members is quite different. They have sort of a Sunday to Wednesday week and then have the next couple of days off. Um, so I used to dedicate all of my Sundays essentially to, to Chen as well. But um, yeah, it's it, I would say it is it is a hugely rewarding um rewarding job because we see the impact that the organization drives as well with the amazing sort of testimonials coming through from some of the services but it's just yeah it it, it takes you have to make a proper commitment to um freeing up your time as well to be able to support the team well um Dama, thanks for sharing your experience of being a trustee it sounds like a really um worthwhile organization and yeah we'll we'll definitely mm. link in the show notes as well for other people that want to get involved and uh, support the great great work you do um it's interesting you, you said with chan about chan about um you know the reason why you converted from uh kick to a cio to kind of access funding i know lots of charities in this space now are kind of looking to to venture as a way to kind of access funding to kind of you know further the charitable purposes directly or you know mm. to get some more money to kind of further the purposes and in this podcast yeah. series, we've been lucky enough to talk with Liz Chinura, who's the 
director of enterprise and innovation at the, the charity crisis you, you may know liz i don't know um of this world's yeah. quite small yeah, isn't it? so i'm great. sure you <laughs> meet your connection so they're doing really good things with the venture studio where they're kind of crisis investing in building and scaling ventures that end homelessness um i was wondering mm. do you think as someone who works in vc do you think we should have encouraged encouraging more charities to kind of be innovative and you know get involved in impact investment or is it is there a role for charities generally to play in the, in the impact ecosystem that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be impact investors i mean there's definitely more room for more um charitable organizations to try out different methods and they've been some really really successful um examples actually so of different sort of approaches to impact investing within the sort of social investment space as well especially from charitable organizations trusts and foundations as well i think there's particularly around sort of the early stage funding ecosystem just because it's incredibly hard for for specific founders to be able to find grant funding for example at a very very early stage to just test ideas and be able to validate their propositions um quite well before they then turn to vc for example for for early stage funding and vc to actually show that they're vc backable business as well and in that sort of remit, I feel like there's definitely a lot more room to, to explore how charitable organizations can actually create that sort of enabling environment for founders as well. From be they be they companies limited by shares, be they kicks, be they different types of entities as well that might not have been super established right now. Um but yeah, being able to have sort of access to grant funding at an early stage to just test and validate your ideas has been has been super, super helpful to some of the founders we backed as well. So we had a couple of companies who came through who applied to, I think it's the Pioneers and Ideas Fund, which was set up by, don't quote me this, I think it's Esme Fairburn who, who used to run that product, that type of fund, which was £15,000 just to test your and validate your ideas and that's been super super instrumental in some of the growth companies now emerging as well in in being able to tap into different types of um, funding for for the ideas but then again with sort of the example from from list and the crisis studio i think it's incredibly important to be open to um innovation in in that sense because it is essentially just enabling a relatively traditional charitable organization to tap into different ideas and how they can solve a specific problem that is tied to their bigger mission, right? So to be able to sort of think about how they can how they can nurture and tap into the startup community for this as well is super, super meaningful and a good way to sort of just provide more access to different ideas coming through as well and yeah um have different aspects of innovation coming through to potentially also make a huge dent in solving the problem at large Mm, for sure and um if you'd like to know but if you're a charity leader listening you want to hear about getting you know involved in the innovation ecosystem as an investor worth definitely worthwhile checking out our interview with with liz and she shares some really good practical examples and as well as the kind of points that dharma dharma just made um we talked a bit earlier about you know being a trustee and having a busy day job and 
you know, having to balance everything. I, I was listening to a podcast with Paul Miller, who's the, the co-founder of, of BGB, and he was uh, something that I found really interesting that he, he talked about in this podcast episode. He was saying that when you're starting up, they were starting up BGB, you kind of set out up to build a team that doesn't look like other VC firms. I don't know, if mm. looking back to six years ago, was that one of the reasons why you joined BGB or was there something else that kind of drew you to working with uh, Paul and other, the other founding team? Yeah, so <laughs> it definitely was a huge factor for me just because um, when I applied to B2B as well, they were using Applied, um, which is a blind sort of recruitment tool. And that sort of just gave me enough reassurance that they were not looking for the usual suspects in terms of like, do you have an MBA and do you have an adventure background, blah, 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 blah. Are you able to actually operate in this industry that you that I might know nothing about? Um, but they were just looking into, do you have the right competency and the skills that you need for, to, for you to execute this job? Um, which was really great because I knew a they wouldn't they wouldn't see my CV until they have they've reviewed my answers to the questions within um, within applied um, so it was a fair and equitable equitable recruitment process in that sense and they wouldn't see my long last name <laughs> so I didn't need to worry about would I just check out my CV just because they won't ever want to pronounce my last name um, and then the the. But what made me really cherish BGB and which I really appreciate about our team culture as well as just in general in terms of how we see progression work as well. So even before I signed my contract with B2B, I had a coffee just with Paul um, who was just talking to me about what my pro career progression could look like if I were to join, which is very unusual and which was really, really helpful in terms of just getting a better idea of what type of company they wanted to build as well. Um, and it sort of, and that's probably also one of the reasons why I'm still here six years later. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. A really good culture. And um, obviously you're more, more back, you know, more wanting to back that culture if you're, you know, felt, felt included and in inclusive. And I'm sure you kind of, um, yeah, you know, now absolutely. you're being a partner as well. I guess it's also you kind of reflect that down <laughs> to the new joiners of BGV and other people in the sector as well. So um, that's a really, yeah, really good culture to work in. Um, you obviously talked a bit about BGV's culture, but I'd like to learn a bit more about BGV if that's okay, particularly your kind of focus on tech for good rather than tech solutionism, which I understand mm. is, is a distinction you make. Yeah, um, it's a really helpful sort of distinction to make as well, because we sort of don't want to further the whole narrative that tech will solve everything, um, because everything that exists is still bound by the sort of socioeconomic conditions of the worlds that we live in, right? So there's only there's only an extent to how we can think about systems change at large Um and I think tech for good in that sense is really focused on just being able to think about how we can leverage technology with the intent of achieving positive social and environmental outcomes at large. Um, the question of scale is always quite an interesting one, right? Because that's also the, the reason why we focus on tech, because we've seen evidence over the past 10, 20 years now that tech is, it can be accessible can have a multiplier network effect and can reach wider audiences as well. Obviously, if the if the sort of infrastructure exists, but what we're really but what we really focus on in in terms of our tech for good investment thesis is really about 
finding those really ambitious founders who have really deep understanding of the complexities of some of the social or environmental challenges they want to solve and then want to build tech products and services in a responsible way to do so with the intention of doing no harm, but also with the intention of generating great financial returns, not only for themselves, but also for the investors on their cap table. Do you think the founders are generally kind of aware of that do no harm element, or is it something that you can kind of offer as the kind of insight that you've, you've you know, worked with so many different ventures and scaled them and you know, you know your view of the landscape? Is that something that they're aware, aware of from day, from day one? It depends on the founder. Um, mm. So we naturally sort of attract more founders who are more attuned to the notions that tech is not good, not bad, and it's definitely not neutral. But it's also part of some of the some of the sort of workshops and classes we have within our accelerator program where we really focus on sort of responsible product management, responsible product design, user testing, and really looking into how do you embed purpose at the core of your business model and have that sort of lockstep approach in order to achieve the sort of material positive outcome that they want to achieve as well. Um, but yeah, I think we've we've definitely seen sort of examples where people were completely unaware of some of the sort of harms or potential negative consequences that can occur from their tech products and services, and some who were incredibly well focused and attuned to what could actually happen um, and clog some of the unintended consequences further along the line, even though they're very very early in their sort of development as well. Yeah, because that ability to kind of look ahead as well, isn't it, and see where it's going. Hopefully, if it's it's still carrying on, there's obviously that uncertainty with lots of yeah. early stage companies, aren't there? But um, you know, good to look ahead and see where it goes, and kind of I guess building good good tech or a good as possible tech from kind of from day one yeah. is always valuable. Um, there's lots of you know, as you you know, you're involved in our impact investing report, which we launched end of last year, and some of the reflections the people we spoke to for that report talked about whether it should be like a negative uh, sort of cost on the kind of negative social and environmental outcomes that you know, may arise due to a business. Do you think that's a valuable thing to, to do? Or do you think it's more important to perhaps focus on the kind of positive incentives to kind of encourage more tech for good ventures? That's, that's a... <laughs> a bit another big um... question. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a big question and definitely one that is a bit more contentious in terms of the mm. answers that can come from this. But um, I think both approaches, it's sort of the, the, the stick and the carrot approach, right? Um, if there's significant negative harm and if there's wide-ranging societal or environmental damage from from a company, be it a tech for good company or not, I think there should be, there should be ways to ensure that there's 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 redress redress as possible um especially if individuals or different communities are affected by by the sort of consequences of it or have been harmed in the process of it as well because accountability in everything matters um but i also think if if we're sort of thinking about the carrot approach to this this question it's definitely we should definitely think about what other positive incentives we could create in order to encourage more people to build tech for good to begin with. And I think there's there's something along the lines of like, could there be a specific tax relief in order for people to find more funding um, if they're purely building tech for good businesses so where it's 100% assured that 
the social mission or the environmental mission is embedded in their articles of association as sort of a guardrail to protect them against mission drift. Could there be sort of other incentives, different R&D tax credits, different ways of actually incubating different products and services that are geared towards particular sort of challenges that are faced by um, different communities that enable us to create better innovative solutions as well. And in that sense, I think there's definitely room to sort of think about what else could we could we do um, to create that sort of enabling environment for more tech for good products and services to thrive. And that's not only to for-profit companies. I think it's incredibly important that we have a multitude of stakeholders with different types of legal structures as well that just operate in the space as well. Mm, for sure. And um, yeah, this carrots definitely sort of stand out to me and I'm sure that people listening will may have their views as well. And, and I'm sure, yeah, welcome <laughs> to get in touch with us if you want to add to those carrots or even the stick if you think that's the, the way forward. But um, for now, which is hopefully a slightly easier question for you rather than a big, big question which can cause debate. Um, I recently saw that BGV has launched its research study to find out how many angels are investing in tech for good. Um, yeah. I need to know why, why have you launched this project and you know, is it perhaps to kind of help the founders within your portfolio to kind of, or other founders within your network to kind of access those impact aligned angels? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of my, my pet project right now. Um, so very happy to talk about this, but um, we've sort of seen quite, this was sort of prompted by, by a friend of mine who was basically asking a really random question around whether we've seen more first time angels actually put in smaller tickets into companies as well. And it, it so happened that in that particular week, we had quite a few sort of operators in who were working in different um, startups and scale-ups as well, who were putting in smaller tickets of 5K or 10K into quite lucrative businesses as well and into more tech for good. And it sort of goes along with the saying of like, they're putting their money where their mouth is because they care and they wanted to invest into into startups that are tackling some of those pressing challenges they deeply care about as well. So there was a bit of a value alignment in finding investing investments they wanted to make based on what they believe in. But the sort of bigger question then stemmed for us, but if there's a value alignment, why isn't there more? Or what else could be done in order to encourage more people to make angel investments into tech for good businesses, particularly because the funding landscape at the moment is a bit precarious. And because VCs also focus quite a lot on sort of serial entrepreneurs and pattern recognition from, you know, this this founder is building a stealth startup who has come from Deliveroo or who's ex-Google or XYZ comes from King Gaffer. That's sort of a pattern we want to break because we want more capital to go to more underrepresented founders in general as well. And those are the ones who are really struggling to find who have access, who struggle to find access to different networks and angel investors in general, or might not have the chance to go to family and friends because family and friends don't have disposable income as much as many, many other counterparts of theirs. So that's sort of the, the remit as to why we then wanted to start this research project, which is also supported by SVB UK. Um, and some other partners in the ecosystem, including yourselves with an event we're running next week, um, to really get a better understanding what sort of are the, what the motivations are from angels to actually 
consider and or make investments into tech for good businesses and particularly around sort of getting a better understanding of what they think about the returns potential because there's a lot of evidence from VCs, impact VCs in general, that there is no trade-off um, between sort of profit and purpose. But there is absolutely no data available that shows us what the sentiment is or what the sort of perceptions around returns are from angels because there isn't a particular study on this just yet, which is why we launched a survey and I'm getting some really interesting responses. So quite the majority of people who have filled out the survey so far are actually thinking that they're getting the same returns as an in investment into non um, tech for good businesses, which is surprising, but also a good signal because it just means that people are catching up on the potential of tech for good in general as well. Um, and yeah, we're, we're sort of hoping that whatever research and data we get from the survey results and sort of some of the case studies we wanted to highlight in this report as well, um, will then serve as a really meaningful resource for founders to be able to tap into those networks as well, to look into angel groups, syndicates, different individuals who have been really, really adamant about just investing into tech for good businesses and showcase some of the ways they can do so effectively as well. Yeah, it does sound like a, a super useful resource for founders and also um, the kind of impact community more generally as well to have that data and, and see where it goes. Um, obviously, yeah. we'll add the links on our, on our show notes, but is there any ways for our listeners to get involved in this project? Yeah, I mean, um, head on to BethelGreenVentures.com, check out our blog post where we've linked the survey and um, have a link to the two events that we're running next week as well. So um, yeah, if people are um, have invested in in businesses in general, they should, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should have only invested in tech for good. We're just really keen to sort of get a bit more data on what sort of the perceptions are and what sort of the investment volumes are in going into tech for good businesses going forward as well. So getting a bit of an understanding of will people want to make more investments and if mm. so, what would enable them to do so. Um, so yeah, if you can fill out the survey, if you're an angel investor, if you don't consider yourself an angel investor, but have worked with different SPVs and um, so special vehicle purpose, purpose vehicles um, to invest into companies with others, um, yeah, please do fill out our survey. Brilliant. Well, um, I'm excited to hear the, and look at the results when they when they when they come out into your course. Um, me too. Me bit, too. <laughs> you, yeah, I'm sure you are. Um, so we talked a bit earlier about the kind of investment you know, investment proposition and how Bethnal Green Ventures kind of supports tech for good companies that are perhaps probably pre product and probably pre revenue. If that's right, if that's your your sweet spot, yeah. you'd consider. Um, yeah. We got interested to know. Oh, let's well, our listeners people listening who maybe have never gone through an investment themselves and they might be sort of in the pre-seed stage is there kind of like a rough timeline of how that investment runs including you know the first starting point how do you kind of find these investable propositions because our first point of investment is through the accelerator program that we run um which is a 60k investment going forward um and then have uh, sort of follow investments reserved to a select number of companies and to do sort of pre-seed up to Series A investments into those companies as well. But in terms of the volume of investments that we would make, we sort of aim to do 25 investments into new companies every year through the accelerator. And that's sort of split to two cohorts. So 
we would look into running a call for applications for about four to five weeks, um, which basically means any founder, regardless of whether they know someone at BGV or they don't, because we don't care about warm introductions, <laughs> it has to fill out this application form, which is basically a set of questions, which is openly available on our website as well, so people can already take a look at those questions. Um, that sort of allow people to fill in answers to what would usually go into a pitch deck because we're also trying to reduce the bias when it comes from looking at really slick pitch deck designs. Um, but basically just enabling people to fill out the, the crucial information that we would need to make investment decisions or just sort of ponder the question, do we want to invite them to interview? And then after the call for application ends, we would usually review all the applications and um, select up to 50 companies to interview over Zoom online, uh, just because it's easier to handle that volume of interviews in such a short time. We love to torture ourselves um, because we do 50 interviews in like three days wow. <laughs> across the entire team, which is uh, yeah, quite a, quite a feat. Um, but then we sort of allow ourselves to a couple of uh, one week or two weeks to do a bit more due diligence if it's necessary and then um, sort of make an investment decision after bringing some of those companies, usually 10 to 15 companies to our investment committee and then, yeah, make the investment offer to our companies that we've selected. Um that sort of is usually a process of that varies between six to eight weeks. Um, but it's usually sort of it is it is an equitable process in that sense because regardless of who you are and where you come from, you have to follow the same sort of standard procedure filling out an application form, um, just like everyone else. And that's been our biggest sort of way of being able to ensure that we're inclusive and also attuned to the needs of some of the founders that we want to support as well, because there's specific questions on like accessibility needs when it comes to making the interview experience a bit more um, easier for people who, for example, have visual impairments or have neuro neurodiverse um, sort of um, patterns that need to be taken into account. Um, so yeah, it's yeah. It must be quite. Is it quite an exciting process for you? I know obviously it's quite daunting to get fifty applications in. But is it quite exciting to like you know read about all these ways that people are going to change the world? You come out of it feeling quite infused, or is it just like how are we going to narrow these down to, to the the next <laughs> next phase? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's wildly wildly exciting because and I I can I can attune to that because I've done that for six years now. Um, so I've gone through a bunch of sort of application processes, but it is it is incredibly exciting because we see such a range in applications and such a range in sort of problems that people are trying to tackle um, all within sort of our investment thesis around sort of positive outcomes to maintain a sustainable planet or contribute to a better society or ensure healthy lives. But it's still, because tech for good is such a large spectrum as well, we see such interesting ideas and such a spectrum of amazing people who have really, really solid ideas of how they want to do stuff, but just need that capital and some of the expertise that B2B can provide in order to build their businesses effectively as well. So, mm. yeah, I, I would say, I personally think it's it's one of the most exciting things about our job. Um 
to sort yeah, of the, yeah look at all the, the applications. Yeah, it does sound really exciting, and um, I'm maybe this perspective. Um, Know, portfolio companies listening they want to get involved in that and um, there'll be definitely information on BGV's website to kind of sign up um, so uh, thanks Dan for talking us through the kind of rough process of uh, investment timeline for BGV but if you zoom out on this slightly and if you're uh, hypothetically a founder of a, a first-time founder of a startup company um, how would you approach securing investment not necessarily from BGV or just generally how would you go about doing it? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. And one, but I would say just sign up to one of our monthly investment readiness workshops because that's like one and a half hours where we cover exactly how they can do that. Um, but to give you an answer now, I would say really hone down on, if you're a first time founder as well, but at a very early stage, there are sort of two things that people will look out for regardless of any sort of available data that you might have at this particular stage, which is um, the team and the product and the solution, um, as in in terms of how does the product you want to develop or the service that you're building actually tackle the main problem and some of the some of the and enables to address some of the needs of your target audience as well. But team is also incredibly important. So who, why are you the right team to actually execute on this business and what sort of skill sets do you bring in order to ensure that you are able to achieve the sort of bigger vision that you might have for, for the business as a whole. Um, but also if there are certain gaps within within your team, especially if you're a solo entrepreneur, if there are gaps as a team because you don't have a team, what else can you do in order to bring relevant expertise that augments your own competency and capabilities of executing on your idea um, through a board, through advisors that you bring on as well and just ensure that you are able to, what sort of evidence do you have to really showcase that you are the right people to build this business and make it really, really successful. Um, so that's definitely the sort of the type of, thing I would focus on as a first-time entrepreneur to really hone down on my pitch and my fundraising narrative in actually highlighting that this is a really great opportunity. This is a really interesting approach and really perhaps a really unique approach in a very saturated market or in a very new market as well in an emerging market to really develop a product and service that is also ultimately going to be adopted by the people I'm trying to serve. Um, so yeah brilliant well I'm sure that's really useful for the first time founders listening lots of couple of practical points to take away with them and uh, to mull over and hopefully implement as well and perhaps go and speak with you about joining Tech for, uh, BGB's Tech for Goods program um, talking about that program <laughs> um, I had the pleasure of speaking with Ed Farrow who's the co-founder of Otto which is a digital health mm. venture in BGB's portfolio um, during our conversation Ed talked about you know, the benefits of being involved in BGB's Tech for Good program. So um, anyone listening, have a check that check out that interview. Um, Ed mm. specifically talked about the benefits of like extending the network as part of the BGV's um, Tech for Good program. Is that like an intentional thing you build into the program? Um, and if so, why is it? We still sort of operate in an industry that thrives on warm introductions, right? So we mm. kind of have to help our founders hack the system as well if they want to be successful in procuring and actually raising investment 
after B2B as well, particularly because we only co-invest at that stage. Um, so we we aim to be to make really meaningful connections to investors, to potential clients, to customers, wherever we can. And it's I must say it's it's quite an, a fascinating sort of network of people that we've accumulated over the past ten years because it were they they range from our mentors who are early adopters of actually building tech for good businesses themselves and have have a lot of experience in how they went about building their own tech products and services as well. So are able to sort of pass the baton and to share some the ins and outs and the no frill stories of actually building meaningful products and services. Um, so yeah, in, in that sense, networks and connections are a huge piece of the puzzle, but ultimately just a way in order for us to help our founders really hack the system and be build scalable tech for good products and services. Mm. You talk about building scalable products and services and often impact investments away for, for ventures to do that. I know that obviously BGB's been one of the first organizations kind of out there kind of doing impact investment and obviously it's more and more popular now um yeah. what do you think distinguishes impact investment from kind of investment that's kind of purely profit seeking so it's not not in lockstep mm. um it's a good question and quite an interesting one depending on where you are in the world because there is um there, there was a really good report which was actually published by, I believe, Comic Relief and Social Tech Trust and um, Indigo, which looked at the notion of social tech or tech for good in essence. But uh, it looked into the sort of notion across um, East, West and Sub-Saharan Africa. And quite a lot of people who were building businesses that had no... Um, no mandate to achieve a positive social or environmental outcome in in the delivery of the service. They all considered themselves to be social tech businesses because they were enabling job opportunities for people who would then start working at these companies or they were contributing to the economy of the country as well. So in that essence, I feel like there's a bigger debate on what we constitute to be a meaningful um, contribution to people and planet, right? Not just by only the virtue of the outcomes that you want to achieve as a business, but also by some of the some of the other considerations that come into play when it comes to job creation, economy contribution, etc. But to your question, I think there is definitely a large growth in impact we see, which is a good thing. Um, we need more impact we see if we want to enable a better startup and um, funding landscape as well for more founders to be able to tap into capital. Um, but I also think that we need to be a bit more savvy in distinguishing between between intent and um, the ability to follow on on that in intent. Um, because just by virtue of being of wanting to do good doesn't mean that you're doing good, um, which is why the sort of do no harm principle should really <laughs> should really be hammered down to every single person building a tech for good business as well. Interesting. I, I don't know if when you're speaking with founders, obviously you don't mention any, any names, but is it really obvious to you when one founder's doing this intentionally, whereas one founder's maybe doing this because there's a pot of cash which they can access and 
become an impact company? Is it, is it really obvious to you based on your kind of six years of BGV that when a company is kind of <laughs> truly impact focused? I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a hard question. Um, I wish I could say that it becomes really obvious, but I mean, if we look at sort of mainstream funding landscape, we've seen sort of examples with Theranos, for example, right? Um, and examples recently with sort of Frank, which was the financial inclusion service that is, uh, yeah, made a lot of headlines recently. Um, so I think it's just, it's sort of, an ability to build more muscle memory to be able to distinguish between intent is is something that needs to be continuously trained and it's incredibly mm. hard if there's no is there, if there's no meaningful interaction with founders but then what we've also found is that if you do want to be truly inclusive as well there are we have to break away from certain patterns where we feel like, oh, just because this founder doesn't have a really strong, compelling personality doesn't mean that they are not intent on actually achieving really amazing, positive material outcomes for people and planet. Um, so really, it, it it is oftentimes more an art than a science. Mm. I guess you can draw on your experience for your, your BA, perhaps, in that, in that aspect as well. Yeah. <laughs> Are, sure, yeah, my um, modernity identity is an evil <laughs> elective, really comes in handy here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you talked about that earlier, but you also talked about um, preventing mission drift in your yeah. investee companies. How do, you do, how do you do that? How do you prevent mission drift? So um, at B2V, we usually, it's part of our sort of term sheet when we make the investment offer that they have to ensure that they embed their mission into their articles of association which is the strongest sort of guardrail we can think of because it's essentially their governance documents stipulate that they will have to achieve that mission right um and then if we sort of look into the businesses that are now series b and beyond they are still sticking to that mission even though they have opened up their product and services to a wider audience as well which was very different from the initial target audience, but still hold through to the mission that they wanted to achieve, which is about um, in some of the examples around um, creating better access to wellness and care systems or to um, to really provide access to sustainable energy as well, but within different sort of remits as well now. Um, so I think that's, that's a really handy way to sort of ensure that if, if you're embedded in the governance structure from the get-go, there's there's the potential to just ensure that mission drift doesn't occur as they scale. Um, but then depending depending on the type of investments people make, because we're minority stakeholder in the businesses, we go in early, but we have only a certain amount of power in essence um, as a shareholder because we don't take up board seats when we make our investments that might happen when we do follow on investments which are a bit more significant in terms of the investment size and volume um but that also just ensures that we just have to really work hard on having meaningful and amicable and good relationships with our founders from the beginning to be able to just ensure that if they have problems around sort of adhering to their mission that they can come to us 
free of judgment and free of discrimination mm. so we can work with them on solving some of the pitfalls of yeah, building a tech for good business as well. Yeah, for sure. I think transparency is really a key part of impact investment as well, isn't it? It's kind of you know reporting on stuff that this went well, but also these things that we can improve on and we want to do it together and we want to do it, do it collaboratively. Um, exactly. I know there's, yeah. there's various kind of Im- impact frameworks which organisations use, and obviously there's no, as far as I'm aware, no like one impact framework for everyone to use. Um, mm. But one that some people would like to use is ones linked to the UN Sustainable De- Development Goals. And I understand you've got some res- <laughs> reservations about the SDGs. Are you, you happy to share those with our, our listeners? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, God, where to start? How much do we start that? <laughs> so I should, I should, I should, um, I should preamble this, this sort of reservation I have with the SDGs. But um, so in my previous lifetime, when I was working in the NGO sector, I was working on ensuring um that there's a better provision to align the SDG agenda um to the needs of older people. And if you have ever worked in sort of advocacy within the civil society sector, it is so much work. It is really, really tiresome and long and enduring processes that you have to go through in order to just ensure that elderly people are maybe mentioned eight times in the entire UN SDG Agenda 2030 document. Um, so that sort of is a caveat to why I might have reservations. Um, I think the biggest sort of reservation, so I, I really like the um, UN Sustainable Development Goals as a sort of blueprint and framework to sort of think about what are ultimately some of the biggest challenges we face as a society when it comes to the social environmental problems that UN member states are um, tackling within their own sort of regions and within their own countries. And it's a really helpful sort of the UN SDG report, for example, just published on an annual basis that sort of looks into are we actually on track to achieving the goals or not. Um, It's a really, really good resource in actually getting a better understanding of what are some of the challenges and what does it has progress occurred and if not what needs to be done um but considering the sort of state of un members uh, as well there are a large proportion of un member states for example that still prohibit um prohibits homosexuality and who penalize um, different sexual orientations as well um which then basically meant that that group of individuals, of community members of the LGBT plus community are left out of the SDG agenda because in order to achieve that consensus amongst more than 190 UN member states, you had to make some compromises and some um, some people were left behind. Um, and it's when, if, you, if, we're, if we're looking at the sort of spectrum of diversity of thought and of individual expression, there is a huge, huge gap in actually looking into how do we enable equitable access to opportunities and just ensure that people have a meaningful, positive life and, you know, stay alive. Um, Mm. Because oftentimes that is ultimately also a consequence in some of the countries where it's still penalized. So in that sense, I also feel like there's a huge gap when it comes to 
actually taking into account some of the most marginalized communities that are left behind because compromises had to be made in order to bring this agenda forward. But overall, I think there's still some room to considering where there's SDG alignment, and that's um, definitely also a helpful way to just bring into the mainstream that there are some significant issues when it comes to the climate emergency that we're in or around sort of the um, inequalities that we're facing when it comes to access to wealth or access to quality education or to employment and decent work opportunities that where the SDG agenda is actually helpful in sort of articulating what needs to be done. But yeah, th those are sort of basically my reservations. Mm. But then there are groups like Stonewall who have really great sort of guidelines in how um, the SDGs can be leveraged to actually support LGBTQ plus communities, for example. So there, there are different organizations that are trying to um, trying to address the gaps that were, yeah, that were presented mm. well I'm gonna, I'm gonna come across that stonewall report so i have to check that out after after you finish, finish wrapping so um we've had a really interesting conversation today we covered covered a lot and i'm sure our listeners will get a lot away from our conversation but i kind of want to start well I wanted to end with a, a question which is probably another tough one so apologies in advance for it but um <laughs> how do you think that we can encourage more more first-time founders kind of start companies that are wanting that are actually moving the dial on a social or environmental issue mm. because it's incredibly hard building a business so like i have huge respect for anyone who's out there founding a business because pff, honestly it's incredibly hard work um if you want to do it right and if you want to do it well um but in order to encourage more people from different backgrounds, from different walks of life to actually go on this path and become entrepreneurs, um, we need more case studies, more role models, more, more stories, really, that elevate all of the different opportunities that are out there. Um, so, yeah, like have more founders on the podcast, um, highlight their different stories. <laughs> That's a good way. Come to tech for good meetups, meet people, be inspired and connect with one another. Um, that would be my my sort of suggestion in order to encourage more innovation to happen. Brilliant. That sounds that sounds really good to me. So um, thanks. Thanks for today's conversation, Dharma. It's really interesting and um, I took a lot away from it and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Um, before we sign yeah, off, is anything else you'd me. like to... No, my pleasure. It's, it's been really good to chat. Um, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to mention or spotlight? I know we talked about the tech for good um, angels report and other things you get and go on with BGV. Is anything particularly you want to shout about? Yeah, I mean, phew, there's plenty. Um, one of the sort of things that we do because we want to enable first-time founders predominantly with sort of the knowledge and how to even think about um, raising funding is through the, the sort of monthly investment readiness workshops that we run online. Um, so yeah, just check out our Eventbrite, sign up to some of those events, come to our meetups. Um, we'll be running one in the next month. Um, what else? Check, do your due diligence on investors as well, because it matters who's on your cap table. Um, that would be that would be it. <laughs> Brilliant. That all sounds sounds good to me, and um, thanks for sharing those as well, Dharma. So um, I also want to thank everyone for listening. If you'd like to learn a bit more about all the exciting things that Dharma's up to, check out our, our show notes. Um, if you'd like to hear from more 
impact-driven leaders, innovators, investors, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe to our feed to be notified of future conversations. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.